Let's pray together. Father, there are not enough words that we can string together in a coherent and cohesive sentence that will rightly describe you. You are beyond comprehension. You are unfathomable. And by your grace, you give us words like, God is love, and God is good, and God is powerful. The Lord is mighty. The Lord is just. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is long-suffering. And on and on and on, we could go describing you. And we would completely fail to give even a small percentage of accountants for your grand supremacy. You are truly beyond all that we could think or imagine. And that should rightly put us in a place of utter humility where we have no recourse but to bow before your feet and worship you. And then you increase for us that need for worship when you, this supreme and transcendent God of glory, who is far beyond our human minds, decides to love us, to send your son for us, to become one of us, for us, and for your glory. Don't ever, ever let us, Father, don't ever let us not revel in that truth. So we ask for the fullness of who you are to be expressed here this morning, that your grandeur and supremacy and sovereignty and your greatness and power, the indescribable, inexpressible, and unfathomable nature that we cannot grasp, I pray that that mighty God would be here this morning. And that as we try to grasp who you are, you would meet us in your spirit through Christ and become tangible and lovable and attainable and we would rest in Jesus. We are in desperate need of grace and you give it abundantly. So we ask for more this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, a couple of things. Number one, why is Mark sitting in a chair? <laughs> uh, uh, this is, um, okay, so I don't know if you guys know this, but pulpits were kind of like invented for, I think, two reasons. Number one, it holds stuff. Number two, a, a preacher's supposed to stand behind it, and it's symbolic of the preacher standing behind the word. So the word sits on the pulpit, the preacher preaches the word, and by standing behind it, the pulpit acts as like, you know, kind of symbolically like this portrayal of the word, and it is the preacher who is simply humbly behind it. So I don't want to remove that reality from any Sunday morning, but I did want to take the pulpit out from between us. And I know you're thinking, well, you have one anyways. This is not a pulpit, this is a music stand. <laughs> so it doesn't count. Pretend it's not here. I still have to hold my stuff, so you just gotta live with this. But I, 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 wanted to remove the pulpit this morning for two reasons. Number one, I wanted you to feel like there was nothing between us. Um, and I wanted to show that symbolically. And number two, uh, I'm not preaching a sermon today. So we're not in Colossians because this is not a sermon. Um, I will talk and you will listen, however, that won't change. Um, 
I'm not going to be expositing a biblical text. Here's the reality. We are a family. And by coming to Grace Church, you choose to be part of that family. And you choosing to be part of this family makes me very happy. I hope you being a part of this family makes you happy. Um, and when a family has a problem with each other, the family has to sit down and work through it. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, I, I was talking to someone this morning, and he said to me, well, I don't think, we, I don't think problem is the right word. So I don't know what else, other word to use other than um, to identify the quote-unquote problem and say that we have a, there is some disunity, is what I would call it. We are not on the same page about some things, and we are not united in some things, and those things need to be dealt with and addressed. And so um, I know we're having a family meeting after the service, briefly, just to talk about some like Valley Christian things and some relationships up there. I'll just take a few minutes, but think of this as a family meeting. Um, and we're going to talk through the disunity and some of the issues that have come up lately. Um, I'm going to talk about my teaching and my preaching. I'm going to talk about Christians teaching and preaching. I'm also going to talk about you and the relationship between you and our teaching. So when I use words like us and we, I'm talking about Christian and I. Um, Brian is an elder. I'm purposely excluding Brian from that conversation because I'm talking specifically about the preaching and teaching that's done by Christian and I in this church. Um, but I want you to also understand that when I say you, and I use the word you today, that I'm speaking generally, okay? Not all of you individually, every single one of you is included in this you. So it may not sound applicable to some of you. In fact, some of you are like, wait, what, what? what's going on? What, there's a, what problem? What, do you, what are we talking about here? I'll get there. So generally speaking, I think there is a problem in our church that includes many people, myself included, Christian included, and we're going to address that problem today because that is what healthy families do. And I firmly and strongly believe in expositional preaching from the pulpit every Sunday of every week of every year or all year long, and I do not have a problem taking one Sunday off from exposition of the word to sit down and deal with important issues so we can move forward as a united body in Christ. So, even if the word you, when I use the word you today, specifically does not include you, this is still about your church family. So, my kids have problems, and I'm talking to two of them, and one of them has nothing to do with the problem. I still make all three of them listen. I talk to all of them. So for some of you, this is, I'm going to address your concerns. And for some of you are going, what concerns? I don't know what you're talking about. This is preventative for you. And this is including you because we love you, all of you. And so there might be a temptation to be a little frustrated or offended today as I start. Challenge you to hang in there because... I will turn the page on that. And um, we're all in this together as a congregation. The next pillar of our vision as a church is outreach, and we are not there yet. Um, we have some internal things to work through as a body to grow in before we can move toward that. And I just don't want anyone feeling like they're in the dark today. And that's why Sunday morning during the sermon is the time to have this conversation. So it will be a biblical conversation, even though it will not be a, you know, your typical sermon. So some of you already kind of know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. So I'm going to provide some context so everyone knows what's going on here. Okay, so bear with me, all right? Because as I start to talk, 
early on, I think some of you might start feeling like, oh, here we go again. It's not where I'm going with this, so just bear with me, okay? And here is what I have heard said directly to me by some of you. And also some people speaking to me directly about things that others have said, kind of a, here's a general consensus of this group of people, and here's a general consensus from this group of people, and this is what I think, and this is what we think, and this is what they think, and whatever. And it's a lot of talking and a lot of things that we've heard. And so I'm going to summarize the general message that I've received lately from you. It's going to sound like I'm complaining or that I'm bashing you. I am not. I'm just informing you what I've heard. And I'm going to be honest about what I've heard. Okay? It varies from person to person, so the summary of it all is this. Uh, the sermons and all other teachings are too much. Uh, too deep and too much. Believe it or not, I've also heard too shallow and too weak. So you can imagine our conundrum. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do then. Just... So, sermons, teachings from Christian and from myself have been too much, too deep, not expositional, not necessarily faithful to the text that you're preaching, kind of on a soapbox ranting about what you want to say and using the text as a catapult to get to that soapbox and say what you want to say, probably specifically about the idea of obedience, um, too legalistic, too strict, too harsh, not encouraging, too much shame, too much guilt, no grace. No grace, no grace. Too much truth, and yes, I've heard those words. Too much truth, not enough grace. Too much about obedience, not enough about grace. So if I were to take the general message that I'm hearing, okay, is this. And I, and I don't think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that anyone in this church would stand up right now and say, I agree there's too much truth here. Right? Even those who have that to say, I think what you're really expressing is there's an imbalance in the two, in grace and truth. So the problem that I'm, I, the way that I identify the issue from what I'm hearing told to me, too much truth, not enough grace. I don't think anyone here would say, well, we hate truth, so there's too much of it. That's not the message. The message I'm hearing is there's just not enough grace, which makes the truth too much. So we have a truth and a grace problem. We have a truth and grace problem. So I'm going to tell you three things today. First, first I'm going to tell you why you are wrong. Second, I'm going to tell you why I am wrong. I said this to my wife last night. She's like, what are you preaching on? Whatever. I said, I'm not going to preach tomorrow. I mean, sort of, but I'm going to kind of just talk to the people. She said, can you like summarize it for me? I was like, I'll try. So I was like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell them that I'm going to tell them three things. And I told her this. I said, first, I'm going to tell them why they are wrong. And then I'm going to tell them why I am wrong. And she looks at me and she goes, you're going to tell them why you're wrong first, Right. And I looked at her and said, no. It, it, and there's a reason why I have to start with you. Because what I have to say about me and Christian doesn't make sense if I don't start with you. So just trust me, okay? Which means I have to start by telling you why you're wrong. Which is going to feel like the very problem that you're concerned with. Right? You're going to get the same ethos, atmosphere, feeling that that you're concerned with is what's going to come across early here. But I'm asking you to hang in there because we'll turn a corner. 
So, first thing I'm going to do is tell you why you are wrong. Second thing I'm going to do is tell you why we are wrong. And third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the solution. Now, what I'll say about the solution is you are going to love it. I promise. If you don't love it, well, if you don't love it, you're not saved. I mean, and if you think that sounds extreme, when I tell you the solution, you're going to agree with that statement. I guarantee you. Guarantee you. You're going to love it. Promise you. Promise. So before I tell you how you're wrong, <laughs> and before I tell you how we are wrong, uh, first I need to lay some biblical groundwork upon which my entire argument stands and Remember, we have a grace and truth problem. We have an imbalance of them both. Uh, but there are two realities about grace and truth that need to be understood. Two realities about grace and truth that need to be understood. Number one, grace without truth is liberalism. Grace without truth is liberal. And number two, truth without grace is legalistic. Truth without grace is legalistic. Now, that word liberal and that word legalistic, I'm going to explain them as I go, I hopefully, but um, I don't really mean those terms in the way you probably think of them, or even technically by their official definition but I'll explain them as we go. I'm kind of using the word like legalistic and liberal kind of colloquially. You guys know that word? Like kind of loosely, kind of generally, not really by its definition, but the way that the general public understands those words. So grace without truth is liberal and truth without grace is legalistic and they're both bad. So, when I examine your lives and your attitudes and your perspectives and your words and your actions, which is my calling to do, it is my job to judge you. And when I say judge, I do not mean condemn. I do not mean slam a gavel down and say, thou art guilty of being whatever. It is my job to discern your lives so that I can shepherd you and love you and teach you and be there for you, tell you hard things and tell you encouraging things. And I can't do that if I don't know your life. And God has given me a spiritual gift of discernment that allows me to see right through your words. I, I know that. I know that's a fact. When people lie to me, and I'm talking about you just in general, when people lie to me, I'm like, lying. I can just see it. I mean, I've been lied to and tricked. I'm not like Jesus, right, who just knows the thoughts of people. But he's given me that ability, and I use it. And I'm supposed to use it, and he has to. I need it. I need the Holy Spirit to be that through me, or I would just be tossed around by you guys all the time. No matter whether it was you or a different church, it wouldn't matter. So I have to have discernment to see through what's really going on, to read between the lines, to really understand what's going on in your heart, to evaluate the fullness of your life, not just the words you say, but your actions, your attitudes, the way you move and think and portray yourself. And that's my responsibility to see that in you. And when I look at you, and remember how I define the word you, speaking generally here, when I look at you, I see a lot of grace. A lot of grace. But I think you are far too liberal with truth. So when I look at you, I see grace without truth. Now that doesn't mean like no truth. Right, obviously, you guys know a ton of truth, a ton of biblical truth. Doesn't mean zero truth. Okay, I'm just, again, just kind of speaking casually here. I see grace without truth in this church. I see too much grace. Yeah, I said that. 
too much grace. I know you're thinking like, what? How can you have too much grace? How could that be a bad thing? Too much grace really isn't the issue. The issue is that your grace is not tempered by truth. You are, as a people, full of grace. And that is gloriously good. That is, dis- that is why, like, despite all that some of you have been through or the things that you have felt or felt like you've endured, you're still sitting in these seats and you're still listening to me because you're full of grace. And you have enough truth to know how to apply that grace, which is good. And it's a beautiful and glorious expression of Jesus that you're showing to me today, and that is how you are loving me. But grace, without truth, becomes liberal. And we tend to think of liberal Christianity as like, you know, those crazy left-wing Christians who like approve of gay marriage and let women become pastors and do different liberal type of things. That's not the kind of liberal I'm talking about. I mean, you are far too liberal with grace because, and I know this is sounding harsh, guys, just bear with me. Far too liberal with grace because you're, you lack enough truth to temper and balance your grace with other biblical truths. There are a lot of other biblical truths. Well, nothing's more important than grace. Grace is the gospel. Without grace, there's no gospel. Without obedience, there's no gospel. What do you need to be saved? Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. What's faith? Faith is belief, believing the gospel. When you believe the gospel, what is that? That's an act of obedience. You don't get saved without obedience, and you don't get saved without grace. So yeah, grace is super significant to salvation, to the gospel. There is no gospel without it. There's also no gospel without obedience. There's also no gospel without justice. There's also no gospel without love. There's no gospel without truth. There's no gospel without death. There's no gospel without sacrifice. And I could go on and on and on. I don't know why We take grace and we put it on this pedestal as if it's the most significant truth about who God is and about his gospel. It is not. We die without grace, but we die just the same without any of the other truths. And all of those other truths in the Bible that we are trying to teach you so that you have more truth, those other truths balance out your grace, and it tempers your grace so that it can be wielded in your life the way that Jesus wields grace. And because grace rules your mentality and that grace is not balanced with enough truth from the Bible, again, I know that sounds extreme. That sounds like, it kind of sounds like, you guys just are super gracious, but you're super dumb. And you don't know anything. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm very aware of how smart you are and how many things you know. Okay? So again, I'm kind of speaking generally here, but, you know, there's... As grace rules your mindset, grace is not balanced with enough truth from the Bible. And it produces liberal Christian living. It produces an easy acceptance of sin. Why? Because we have grace. It produces avoiding sound doctrine. Oh, we don't need that. We just need to be gracious and loving. Oh, we don't need to know that. It doesn't matter. We have grace. Oh, we don't have to obey. We have grace. Don't have, you don't have enough truth to balance out your imbalanced portion of grace. 
And so grace rules your life, and if grace rules your life without the balance of truth, then sin will abound. That is what Paul says in Romans 6. He says it in a different, from a different angle, but the meaning is still the same. He says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. He says it twice in that chapter. So if you take the same reality and turn it or just, just word it differently, it has the same meaning. Should grace abound so that sin doesn't matter? By no means. So with grace being unrestrained by other biblical truths, you get out of balance. And you try to find this rut or habit of living to stick to that is powered by grace. And then when someone drops a truth in your bucket, if that truth is heavy enough, it will throw off your balance because you don't have enough truth to balance the grace in the first place. And what's a heavy truth that could throw you off balance? Because I could tell you a not heavy truth, like Jesus loves you. And you'd be like, that doesn't throw off my grace balance. But if I drop other heavy truths, God, or, God has ordained every single moment of your life, period. That's a heavy truth. That'll throw your grace off balance as it lands, that truth lands in your bucket. For some of you, Michael, that doesn't throw me off. So we all have varying degrees of what truths are too much and too heavy and whatever. So I, that is what I see in you, okay? Um, too much grace, not enough truth. I see grace without truth, and I think your idea of Christian living is far too liberal for the Bible. Well, what about the verses about being full of grace and being kind and gentle and generous and encouraging and loving and caring and all oh, these like really good grace-oriented Isn't that who we're supposed to be in Christ? And look at Jesus' life. He was all those things. I agree 100%. He was also the opposite. And he carried that balance very well. What about all the verses about discerning and judgment and justice and being wise as serpents and being faithful and obedient? What about the warning passages in the Bible? The plethora of warning passages in the Bible that are warnings to Christians that what your life look, look, looks like is a serious indicator of your spiritual life, is a serious indicator of whether you're saved or not, is a serious indicator of your relationship with God. What about those verses? Both sides are good. The only time they aren't is when they're not balanced. Do you hear that? Both of those perspectives are good. All this grace, love, goodness, kindness, gentleness, yeah, it's all good, of course. And, and then all this, there's all this justice and righteousness and obedience and things like that and judgment and wisdom. Like, those are great too. But both of them, without the other, is an imbalance. It's not good. If grace rules, I want you to listen to this. If grace rules in the absence of truth, then grace has no biblical boundaries to live in. And then everything we do in this Christian life becomes fair game. Because we get to just chalk it up to, eh, I'm covered by grace. And it just gets excused by grace. And then the command, that this is what happens. This is the product. And I think this is what's been happening. Then, when we are there, if we're in that place where the grace is ruling in the absence of truth and it leaves us with no biblical boundaries and then everything we do in life becomes fair game, then the commands in the Bible start to sound legalistic and harsh and too much and too deep and shameful, and guilt-producing, and not encouraging, and strict. 
And it feels and sounds that way because your grace is not balanced by truth. And that is why you say these things about our teaching. Because your grace is not tempered by truth. I know this is sounding harsh. Hang in there. You don't have enough truth. You don't have enough truth because of a few reasons. Either you're not in the word enough, so you don't know truth, or you're in the word, but because you wear the lens of imbalanced grace without truth, you refuse to take off those, that lens of grace to see the, some, some of these texts clearly. And then you only find the Bible to support your views on grace. Or what else is happening is you're not listening to your pastors who are teaching you the word because you can't bear the truth that they're teaching because you're already imbalanced. And that is what I see in you. Too much grace, not enough truth, and the product is liberal Christian living and liberal doctrine and loose Christian living that allows too much sin and cringes at some of the hard truths. That is why you are wrong. So, here is why I am wrong. Here is why we are wrong. I look at your imbalance and I go, I have an answer for that. I have an answer for your imbalance of grace over truth and in seeing such a grave mistreatment of grace, that's what I would call it, a grave mistreatment of grace, which at the same time is, in, is for you and, and I believe this is true, an abundant use of God's good grace. Okay? So as much as your abundance of grace is beautiful and glorious, I look at it and I see, but I also see the imbalance which makes it also a mistreatment of grace. So I look at that mistreatment of grace by which you can justify disobedience or at least justify, you know, how important is obedience? And I see that, and I want to correct that imbalance. Why do I want to correct that imbalance? Is it because I want to stand up here and be smart, look smart? Is it because I want to stand up here and have some, like, cool moment where, like, oh, Pastor Mark really told us today. Man, he's got guts to say those things to us. That kind of, do I want to be that kind of pastor? No. I love people. My sister asked me when I was like 22, what do you want to do with your life? I was like, I don't know. She's like, you don't know what I was like. All I know is I just want to like be around people a lot. I just love people. It needs to be about people. God's like, you're going to be a pastor. I was like, yeah, people. That makes sense. You know, and I realized he's been preparing me for shepherding my whole life because I love people. Why do I want to stand up here and tell you hard truths? It's because I love you. For two reasons. Two reasons I love you. Number one, uh, yeah, number one, um, God commands me to love you. So whether I really feel it or not, I have to. <laughs> number two, because I want to. Because I do. Because I just do. Like you came here and you sit here, and you sitting in that seat says, I trust you, Mark. I trust you, Christian. I trust you, Brian. I trust the leaders in this church to teach us the word of God. And sometimes we stop there. And we don't take it further like we should. Take it further to say, I, I trust you to speak into my life. I trust you to call me on my sin. That's what membership is. When you become a member at Grace Church, you are saying, hey, church leadership, I submit to your wisdom and your biblical views on my life and I give you permission to speak into my life, to correct me, to rebuke me, to challenge me, to encourage me as well, to strengthen me and to love me. That's what I want to do. So, if you're too much grace and not enough truth, 
then how do we balance that out? Well, my solution made perfect sense to me. I think you can see where I'm going with this, right? You're too much grace, not enough truth. What do you need? You don't need more grace, I can tell you that much. What do you need? More truth. So I brought the hammer. And I gave that hammer to Christian. I said, Christian, you bring the hammer too. <laughs> and we did. And then people were like, ah, I don't like the hammer. And I was like, I know you don't. That's why you need it. And I was like, fine. I'll bring a chisel too, right? The chisel and the hammer. And we're going to reshape you. And you guys are like, ow. And we were like, suck it up. Ow. No, suck it up. Ow. Don't, haven't you read your Bible? Don't you know what the Bible says? And then we hammer at you again. And you're like, stop, this is hurting. And we're like, endure. And we hit again. And you're like, stop it. And we're like, finish the race. Be faithful. Be strong. Fight the good fight. Endure, endure, endure. But it hurts, Mark. I need a break. You don't get a break in the Christian life. The Christian life is about suffering. So get over it. Right? That would have felt like. So that was my solution. Truth. And what we did wrong was we gave you truth without grace. And obviously I don't mean no grace. There, I'm sure many of you have many examples of how like Christian and I were probably gracious to you, whether in the sermons or just in life with you. Of course, of course we have grace, just like of course you have truth. I don't mean no grace, but we are more truth and less grace. A lot of truth without a lot of grace. And we were imbalanced. And as I said earlier, you know, grace without truth is liberal, but truth without grace is what? Legalistic. Now, legalism is trying to earn your salvation through obedience to the law, and I don't think that's the kind of legalism that you guys are thinking about. Because if what you're hearing in our messages is you have to obey the law or you're not saved, then it's not what we're saying. And we've never said that. No one in this church is saying that. So I'm using your definition of legalism. What I would say is, is like the general idea what legal, legalism is. Us giving you truth without grace appears harsh and heavy-handed and overbearing and unlovely, unloving, right? I think God wants me to lean forward. So, <laughs> um, truth without grace, harsh, heavy-handed, overbearing, unloving. So I'll say what I mean by legalism is um, truth without grace is too strict, legalistic in the sense that legalism as like, it's just too strict of living. There's no, there's not enough grace in, or room for grace in my life and you're not giving me room to make mistakes. You're just telling me I can't make them. And now I feel overwhelmed by my sinfulness to the point where I don't know what to do. And now I'm discouraged. I want to be clear about something as I move forward. I am in no way, shape, or form at any point during this message this morning am I retracting anything we've taught. The truths that we have taught are true. I'm not perfect, and neither is Christian. I'm sure we've made mistakes at the pulpit with some truths. Of course we have. I've been caught in them, I've been called out on them, and I have been wrong at the pulpit. But they're not like, heresies they're not unbiblical truths that we're like no we're right and we're actually biblically wrong I know we're not perfect but the truth that we speak and preach at the pulpit I'm not retracting those truths and you should not retract your grace but with such an emphasis on obedience we have stretched you far too thin and then instead of giving you a rest, like a, like a weightlifter, you know, you go to the gym, you lift some weights, pick up some 25-pound dumbbells in each arm, and you lift, you do 10 of them. What do you do after 10? You put them down, and you rest for how long? A minute. You pick them up and go again. 
We're like a personal trainer. We're like, you've been resting far too long in life. Pick those things back up. You don't get a rest. Your whole life has been rest. Your whole life has been grace. Pick them up. You need to get strong. You don't have truth. Pick up the dumbbell of truth. You don't get a break. And you're going, I'm not strong enough for this. And now I'm tired. So tired, I can't work out tomorrow. So you give in a little bit. That's our fault. That's our fault. That's on us. That's on me. I say on us, like me and Christian. And the only reason that I include Christian is because we talked about this and he's like, I'm going to talk to the congregation and apologize to them before, during announcements. And I'm like, no, you're not. Because I am. (laughs) And I'm going to speak for both of us. And the reason I say, I'm including Christian because we agree on this and we've talked through this. Um, But I'm the one who's responsible here. I'm the one who's responsible. I'm the senior pastor. Okay? The elders, as a, as a group, we are, there's a plurality of elders. The elders are equally responsible. I do not have more authority than Brian does. Brian does not have more authority than I do. We have equal authority. Christian is not an elder, but he is a church leader. Probably should be an elder. But he's a pastor, and he is a shepherd to you. If you're thinking to yourself, no, he's an intern. What kind of intern is he? He's a pastoral intern. He is a pastor. He's shepherding you. Anyone who's ever spent more than five minutes with him knows that he has shepherded you. Whether at the pulpit or in your house, at dinner, lunch, in the hallways, whatever, he treats you like I treat you. He acts to you as I act to you. He shepherds you and he loves you and he cares for you. He is your pastor. We should accept that. So, I am speaking on behalf of Christian, but I'm really speaking ultimately of me. Because anything Christian does lands on my shoulders. Anything you do lands on my shoulders. That's my calling in life. It's a heavy one, but I love it. Oh, I love it. You know why I love it? Because I love you. There's nothing greater than when my kids, my kids, my children, my own flesh and blood come to me, my boys, and they like... They've got a problem, and I get to speak into their life. I'm like, oh, I get to like, love my kids in this unique and awesome way. I feel that way about you. I really do. I, and I think you cannot fathom it. I really believe that. I don't think you can understand how I feel about you. It's not possible for you. It is not possible. You could sit here and spend the next seven days trying to contemplate and experience that feeling. How could Pastor Mark feel about me? It can't be a greater love than I feel towards my kids or my spouse, so I'm sure I could understand it. You cannot. You don't know what it feels like to be a pastor, to be to called to be God's representation of Jesus Christ to his very people, while also at the same time being one of those people who are the sheep under the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. So I am you, just like you, no better than you, no greater than you, nothing about me puts me at a level above you in personality or, or anything. I'm not unique. There's millions of pastors. I'm not special. I'm just one of the guys God called. But the role, the role is special. The calling is unique. And when God calls men to it, (sighs) when God calls men to it, he works on them a lot because they need it. You need it. You need me to be sanctified. And then I look at you and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm getting sanctified. Like, God is working on me. Oh, man, Christian and I spend time every week. We sit in the office, and we're just like, dude, let's work through our sin. Yesterday, he's like, what's your big sin? And I was like, what? Don't ask me that. Don't, what? You don't get to ask me those questions. I'm your senior pastor. Get out of here. <laughs> we talked. We talked through it. I'm resistant to it. I don't like it. We have to. I need to be sanctified so that I can sanctify you. So it's a heavy burden. You can't get it. You don't understand it. You'll never know what it's like. You just never will. It's not like being a parent. It's not like being a spouse. Even if it was, do you have a hundred children? <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I, I mean this with all my heart. Every Sunday, I talk to, I'll just say on average, maybe 20 of you. They're short, brief, chat, 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 and then you go, and then I think about the other 60. And I go, oh, I didn't talk to him today. Oh, I didn't get to talk to her today. Oh, I didn't get to... Can you imagine going a whole week without even talking to your own son or daughter? That's how it feels for me. So I pray for you all week. I try to contact as many of you as I can while I'm busy doing other things that are also my way of loving you and taking care of you and shepherding you, building ministry for you, making church good for you, making worship a reality for you, preparing to teach you the word, asking you to come here and listen, saying, hey, men, you need to man up. Time for men to become men. Time for men to know the word. We're going to have a men's Bible study Friday morning at 6. Why do we do that? You think I do it? Because we just need to have Bible studies. That's what churches do. You think that's my motivation? Not at all. Men, we need elders. What's going on with elders in our church? I don't know. I know, but that's what you're thinking. I don't know. It's just Mark and Brian right now. Brian's term ends in, eight, in August. And then it'll be just me. It'll be just me and Christian which I know, based on what I'm saying today, does not excite a lot of you. If it's just me and Christian running the church, you guys are going to be like, whoa, 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 where's some accountability here? We've got two young guys leading this church, and we've got no age or wisdom involved here. Well, here's the reality about our eldership. We just don't, we, we talk about it at every single elder meeting. Every single elder meeting is the top priority in our elder discussions. We need good, godly, equipped, qualified men to lead our church. And I'll tell you where we're at. There are qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 that tell us what eldership requires. Certain men automatically don't fit the bill. It does not mean you're not a good man. Because there are men in this room who are great men. Godly men who love Jesus and love their wives and serve their families, and serve this church, and are faithful, and obedient, and sound. That sounds like an elder to me, right? But there are stipulations in the Bible that make men like that just not qualify. Just doesn't qualify. Doesn't mean they're bad. Doesn't mean they're not good. They're all the things I just said. They're just God set a standard for eldership, and it is high, way high. So high, I don't like standing on the ledge and looking down, because it's terrifying to be up there, easy to fall. One of those stipulations, one of those qualifications, requirements for eldership is that a man be a husband of one wife, which means that any man in our church who has been divorced and is remarried and his wife is still alive does not qualify for eldership. That's just a reality. And if you're curious what I think about that doctrine, I've preached on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 year, a couple years ago. You can find it on our website or on my podcast. You can go listen to it. There's two sermons about marriage and uh, divorce and remarriage that, where I address these very issues. And so a husband of one wife means you're in one marriage covenant. A man who is divorced and remarried is in two marriage covenants. That man is still a good, awesome, godly man who deserves respect and should be honored in many ways and serves and loves his family and his church. Men that I look at and I think, Lord Jesus, why would you give us that one qualification? 
There are so many men that would be so great without that mark. And that's just because that's what God said. I'd love to look past it. I know tons of pastors who look past that. I've talked to pastors who look past that. And I say, why do you look past that? You want to know the answer I got 100% of the time? Every single pastor I've talked to who lets remarried men whose wives are still, whose first wives are still alive, the number, they, they all say this. They say, well, if we stick to that, then it hurts people's feelings. And I'm like, how do you preach the gospel? Because that's going to hurt people's feelings. How do people grow? We have to risk offending each other. Truth will never happen here if we can't risk offense. This is a risk. Today is a risk. I'm risking myself and putting myself on a limb to do this. This is risk. We have to risk. So it's a risk for me to sit here and tell men in this church who are good, godly, faithful, Jesus-loving, gloriously good men whom I love personally but don't fit one of the qualifications. It has nothing to do with their character. It's just a rule. And so that automatically takes eldership off the plate for a lot of men. I don't love it, but I also love it because it's God's way and he's going to bless his way. So in our meetings as elders, we sit there and we talk about eldership and we're, we have a plan. This, Tuesday, this last Tuesday, we had an elder meeting and we finally came up with a plan on how we're going to deal with eldership. I'm not going to tell you right now, it's too much. So my point is, that's one of the ways we're trying to love you. My point is, there's a lot of other things going on. There's a lot of things going on. We need more men to rise up. We need more men to support the pastors. We need more men to do the job. We need more elders like me. So, in my attempt to balance your lack of truth that misinforms your understanding of grace. We have taught you truth, but with too little grace, or at least not enough grace. Listen to this. With not enough grace to bond with you. Do you get that? You're full of grace, no truth. We're full of truth, no grace. We've got no bonding agents between us. Does that make sense? And that's the real issue here. We're not bonding to you. You're too gracious for us, we're too truthful for you, and then we repel each other. Okay? I bring you truth, but you reject it because I don't bond to you with grace. So you're like, I don't know you because I bring no grace. Like, all I know is grace, and I don't feel any grace from you. I don't like that. And you're like, we're like, but I got truth. You're like, I don't care about your truth, man. I don't feel, we're not on the same page. And it's the same thing, vice versa. You bring grace, and we're like, that's just, your grace is just, you have no truth. I, you're not bringing truth. To, I see your grace. I just, I don't want it because there's no truth. So you don't connect with me on a truth level. So I can't receive you. And we just repel each other. You're like a white blood cell that rejects our truth because there's no common protein of grace that tells you that I'm not an invader. So you kill me like a virus. And vice versa. You're so full of grace without truth that I'm like a, white blood cell that finds no truth receptor in you, so I treat you like a virus because I find no commonality to you and I kill you. And we just kill each other. But the problem still remains. There are no bond, there's no, we share no bonding agent because you don't have enough truth to find my truth palatable, so you reject it. And I don't have enough grace to find your grace palatable, so I reject it. And we end up at an impasse. Something has to give. And I think how I respond to that today will likely determine whether you break or I bend. So how will I respond? By offering you a solution. I told you what your problem is. I told you what my problem is. I told you how you're wrong. I told you how I'm wrong. Now here's the solution. And you're going to love this solution, I promise you. What is the solution? Jesus. Oh, it's so generic. No. 
I want you to see something in the Bible that I think is amazing. We have a bonding problem. You can't receive my truth because I haven't given you grace, and I can't receive your grace because I believe your grace is misinformed by a lack of truth. So we're at this problem. We're like two positively charged magnets that repel each other. So we can't accept each other, and that is, by definition, not the church. The church is united, united in Christ. So Jesus has has to become our bonding agent who links us to each other so that we can both learn to give in a little so that we can unite to each other in Christ and so that we can both grow together. So how is it that Jesus becomes a bonding agent that makes it impossible for us to link to each other and so solve the issue with both of our imbalances? How does Jesus become that bonding agent? The Bible tells us really clearly. One of the greatest, awesomest truths about Jesus in the whole Bible. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. The perfect balance of both. He is what you are not. He is what I am not. He is what you need. He is what I need. He is what we need to be in us, to be a church. He is the perfect balance of both. Well, he is also the extreme of both. He is more extreme about truth than I will ever be. And if you as a church, are all grace and no truth, I can tell you what, you would crucify Jesus too if he were your pastor. Because he is way more extreme about truth than I am. But you know why you wouldn't crucify him? Because he is full of grace too. And he would find a way to reach your heart so that you could receive his truth. And he is way more extreme about grace than you will ever know or ever be until you're glorified, of course. But he is balanced, so for Jesus, it works flawlessly. And he's the solution for our problem because what Jesus becomes is as you are grace without truth, you become liberal, and we are truth without grace, we become legalistic, and Jesus enters the picture, and he becomes grace and truth. And he becomes a bonding agent. He takes your grace, and he pulls you towards us, and he takes our us, and he fills us with his grace, and he pulls us to him, and he goes, you two, through me, can now know each other. And then he fills you with truth, and he fills us with grace. And he becomes the connector that opens your eyes, and my eyes, and your mind, and my mind, and your heart, and my heart to each other. And then through Jesus, I will become more understanding and patient and wise and gentle and lowly and loving and kind and understanding and gracious. And he will teach me how to deliver truth in a way that you can receive it. And part of that will include as he works in you and makes you wise and understanding and gives you, builds, builds in you a hatred for sin, a love for the cross, an understanding of the gospel, a, a hunger for doctrine, a, 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 an unquenchable thirst for the word. And as he grows that in you, he will fill you with truth so that as he shows you grace through me and delivers truth to you on the platter of grace, you are ready to receive it because he is building in you a hunger for truth because you are filled with Christ and so am I. And through Christ, we will become united and one and understand each other and live together in harmony and peace and unity and love and grace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness to Jesus and obedience to his word. And we'll become the church. So...
What would that look like? I'm almost done. What would that look like if Jesus began to reign more and more in your life and in my life? Well, I think that no matter what, it has to start with me. I already expressed to you my role here. I have to take a leadership role. I have to take the first step. I can't expect you to. I can't say what Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. If I'm not following Christ. So I'm going to take the lead here. As your shepherd, I must lead. I have no choice. It's my calling. So I believe that our truth to you has been untempered by grace and has given some of you grief. So, in order for us to grow together, there must first be some healing. And healing requires restoration, and restoration requires forgiveness, and there's no forgiveness without an apology. So, for any way in which I have been discouraging, I'm speaking for Christian too. Christian and I agree, this is our apology but I'm going to say I, but I'm speaking for both of us. Anyway, in which I have been discouraging, harsh, heavy-handed, not gentle, unloving, or not gracious, for that, I'm sorry. That's not like Christ, and it's sin. That's sin, and it's not okay. For me to stand at the pulpit and demand your obedience will I disobey the command to be gracious. So I'm sorry. My intentions are always to love you. That's not an excuse. It's not like, I'm sorry, but I was trying to love you. This, you know, I'm sorry, but is never an apology, right? <laughs> I'm just sorry. But I do want you to know that my intention is always love. And I believe that Teaching you truth that you do not know is one of the most significant ways for me to love you. But as I said, without grace, I'm not like Jesus to you. And that imbalance only hurts you. And I don't want to hurt you. I want to discipline you. And the Bible says discipline will hurt because it will produce righteousness. That's Hebrews 12. I want that. But I don't want to hurt you by sinning against you. So for hurting you in my sin in any way, in any way that grace was not present, I'm sorry. And I'm asking you to forgive me. To forgive us. Some of you are sitting here going, I think you're crazy, Mark. I do not feel like you've been heavy-handed, too strict, or anything like that. I feel like the sermons have been, bam, awesome growing, learning, changing. This is awesome. I don't know what you're talking about. If anyone thinks that way, they're crazy. I think this has been amazing and I want you to keep doing what you've been doing. Okay, remember, we're a family. Not everybody feels that way. We're all different places. And if, if you're that kind of person that thinks like, oh, I think it's been great. I don't know what you're talking about. I feel like the messages are full of grace and truth and I love it. Keep doing it. That doesn't mean that that person is more mature than the person who's offended. That doesn't mean that. I don't know where you guys are all at individually. I mean, a little bit, but not totally. So just realize that, like, we're all in different places, all dealing with this differently. So I do want to be clear that as I say I'm sorry and I ask for your forgiveness, that I am not retracting the things that we have taught, because they are true. But maybe there's too many of them at one time or too much of it in a certain way or too harsh in a delivery or it's too deep and we demand too much and it's too many commands to follow and whatever it is, it's just too much. So, but we don't retract the truths themselves. And I'm going to stand on those truths still until God gives me a different Bible, which I'm pretty sure he won't. When I first got here in 2015, it was October 1st, 2015, I moved into Chuck and Betty's house for a month while my family was moving here from Montana. And one of the first things I said at the pulpit was, I need a lot of grace. I remember saying it. 
probably find that sermon online. It'd have been like October. It might have been October 1st. No, like 2nd or 4th. I don't know, whatever. Early October 2015. You can find that sermon on the website. Listen to it. I don't remember how exactly I started, but I remember in that sermon, I had said, um, I need your grace. Now, most of you weren't here. It's a different church now. So I'm going to repeat it. I need your grace. It's the only way you'll forgive us. If we can all agree at this point, then I think we as a body have a great future of bringing glory to God together and years of growing together. And I hope what you heard today was love. And I hope that together we can do what we were meant to do. Build God's kingdom. A kingdom built on what? Grace and truth. I love you guys. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. The only way I can love anybody in this room is through you. There's no way. You are my God. You are firm throughout our life. You are so good. We don't deserve this. We should all have been cast into hell and burned and died for our first sin. By your grace, you have saved us. And by faith and obedience, you have given us to believe that gospel, to receive your grace. We love you. Help us live in it. Cause your people to forgive. Um, God, uh, do, just want to be honest with you, Lord. I want to be honest with you and with your people. We want you to do amazing things here. We know that our desire for you to do amazing things is half selfish. We want a mega church. We want a big church. We want a church that does cool things and has cool ministries and does this and that. We know there's selfish motivations. It, it, it boosts our ego. We can tell our friends about our cool church and whatever. We know that there is ego. We know that there is selfishness in our desire to see you do amazing things in this church. But we all agree that even in the presence of some of those sinful thoughts, we all truly, genuinely want Jesus exalted we want to build your kingdom and worship with as many people as we can in heaven forever. That's what we want. We want your glory and we want to be satisfied in it. So do amazing things. Despite our sin, do amazing things. Make us faithful. If, it, if you won't do amazing things because we're not faithful, make us faithful. And I think it starts here with some healing that you have caused. We love you, Lord. Jesus, you are our bonding agent. You are our truth and our grace. Pour both into our lives without pause. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.